When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before this week's edition of Storytime, a quick word about the book that we were talking about on the weekly show, Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket by Tim Wigmore and Stefan Szymanski. It's an outstanding book, as you would know if you listened to our interview the other day. And now we're going to be talking about it for a couple of weeks on top of that. Yeah, we did the interview and uh, and the publisher said, well, you should tell people about it uh, in some sort of arrangement. <laughs> so here we are and that's what we're doing. Uh, luckily, we've actually read the book because we had to read it for the interview and we both enjoyed the book so we don't have to make anything up. It's a, a book which is looking at stories, ideas, mythologies, uh, popular conceptions in cricket and then trying to unpick them with actual hard data so it's a combination of a cricket journalist who has the sources and knows the tales and how things fit together and an economist who can bring the analytical side of data and statistics to try to answer these questions yeah i like that stefan in his case he's an award-winning economist who wrote Soconomics, which did exactly this there it's not so much myth busting as it's taking kind of like widely considered Truisms and, yeah. and just testing them. Yeah, just testing them and, mm. and, and seeing where they work and, and where they don't. So, I mean, questions like why do England rely on private schools for their batters but not so much their bowlers? How do demographics shape India's rise? I mean, what's the what's the go with South Africa struggling to produce black test batters, which we didn't touch on in the interview, but it's a compelling chapter. So, And even the weather. I mean, I, I never really thought too much about how the disparity in temperature from one country to the next could affect performance. But mm. the work that Stefan did there in that chapter makes it pretty clear it does. Yeah, and, and even a question like that, it's something you might say sort of obliquely. You'd go, oh, well, these players will be struggling with the conditions here because they're foreign conditions to them. But uh, you know, actually being able to put it into the numbers it makes it, opens a sort of avenue of clarity. So there's a lot of this. There is focus on how uh, Sanath Jayasuriya and Adam Gilchrist were more important to transforming test batting than the advent of T20 cricket, which didn't actually affect test batting much at all, according to the analysis there. The broader approach to cricket being international-based rather than club-based and the way that that contrasts with things like football or how Afghanistan is the major force in transforming cricket in Germany. All, all kinds of different stories and chapters that you can wander through, uh, and it's a very enjoyable read. Yeah, even through to a topic like fandom and how the Barmy Army, how important they've been to transforming the way that people watch cricket around the world. Uh, it's an absolute ripper, as you'd expect from these two accomplished professionals, uh, Stefan Szymanski and Tim Wigmore. The book's called Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. It's available now. It's out 
in the UK and in some parts of the world on Amazon. If you're in Australia, you can pre-order it there as well. So go to Amazon and simply search Cricketomics, the anatomy of modern cricket, and we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. On with the show. I had to go This is the final word, story time. The show that we do on the weekends where we go back in time. Sometimes we go forward in time. We're not so sure about the things that happened there, but we're very sure about some of the things that happened in the past. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is the other person with me. It's looking very cheerful today. I don't know what's happening in Adam Land that's making you look so happy, but you are. Yeah, just when you said that, it reminded me of a conversation I was having yes- yesterday. I went to a podcast fair yesterday in Islington, like, Mm-hmm. 5,000 people in a convention hall type of thing where everyone was represented, every, I guess, audio company, whether it's those mm-hmm. who are producing podcasts or making equipment, everyone was there. It was one of those kind of things. It was really cool. I feel really left out now. It was good. I mean, it, it, they were meant to do it in 2020 and, of course, that wasn't possible. They weren't able to do it last year because it was still lockdown provisions, not that those were honoured by Downing Street, but anyway... And they could have done it last year in hindsight and just said it was a work mm. function. And Anyway, and so this was like a big extravaganza and really cool. But I went to a session that was about television podcasts. So recap style. Contradiction in terms, is it not? <laughs> a television you podcast. You would think so, but there's a lot of, uh, yeah. there's a lot of, uh, there are synergies there, they might say. Oh, you mean a podcast that talks about television, not yeah. a podcast that's on television. That's right. And of course- if a podcast know, is on television, it is not a podcast. <laughs> it's a television show. I was going to say my first podcast, obviously I was making this from 2015, but the other podcast I made at the start was an episode mm. by episode recap of the Americans, very lo-fi. We were listened to by about 40 people, but gosh, we loved making it. And you and I have joked about making one for Slide and there's definitely, mm. definitely an opportunity here for us to do that. But I've pitched up doing one about Quantum Leap, which is returning next year. Mm-hmm. Quantum mm. Leap is being rebooted for the 21st century and that's going to be something that I try and uh, take advantage of and make a podcast going back and tracking all of that. So when you said then uh, uh, travelling through time, that's the first thing that came to mind, that maybe I'll mm-hmm. be travelling through time with, with Dr Samuel Beckett <laughs> uh, soon enough again. <laughs> Um, I noted that so on the on the chat page on the Discord, so a few people had pointed this out to you. They were letting you know that, that the reboot was coming and you replied by saying, oh, I'm very aware of this. You said several of the Quantum Leap groups that I'm in online have posted about this. And the response, that was one of the funniest things I've seen, the, the response that all of these people going, what do you mean several of the Quantum Leap groups that I'm in? Well, back when <laughs> like, Facebook started, you know, however many years ago now, I joined a number of these groups and to this day uh-huh. they, they and if you were the type of person who st- set up a, a Facebook group about a television show like that in the late 2000s you're probably still quite dedicated to the cause so yeah. I still get that in my notifications and I click, <laughs> I I would be the type of guy who I don't check Facebook too often but if there's a quantum leap uh, notification yeah uh, I'm, I'm clicking through, and so it is. That's how I learnt that the reboot had won the approval of the TV executives. It's going to be on NBC next year. Right, every time the notification comes up for the hilarious llama photos page that you subscribed yeah, to in right. 2007, <laughs> you're like, oh, what's going on in the world of hilarious llamas? Let's find out. Um, let's uh, let's have a little shout-out, too, for Thomas Miles, who's been, been doing God's own work in uh, making his own versions of the highlights from the Pakistan-Australia series recently. Stitching our radio commentary onto the vision. This was 
a massive undertaking from Thomas, who is such a great supporter of everything that we do on The Final Word. He's done this before with the highlights from the UAE series that we had the rights for and uh, commentated in 2018. So he's gone through every single day of the series that was played in Pakistan, all 15 of them, and married it up with the audio he recorded of the SEM broadcast and married the two together, but not the whole thing. Where the art is, is the highlights packages that are made up on social media, they're only about an hour per day or something like that. So he's got to listen to Mm. every... I mean, he's got to piece together every... Mm segment of audio like you know if there's a wicket and they might carry it on for a few more balls and he's worked out how to slice and dice the whole thing so that is a proper labor of love and he's whacked on the back of it our final word dailies uh, the video that we popped on youtube each night so he's got them as well so it's really cool uh and he's um for the time being just popped them on discord i'm not sure what his plan is i'm not sure uh, where he might get himself in trouble or otherwise popping them on YouTube himself. I mean, I think he probably should just do it and see what happens. We'll see. But at the very least, if you're on Discord, you can uh, see Thomas's work uh, and you can get on Discord by simply uh, submitting a nerd pledge and playing along uh, in what we're doing here on Storytime. So it all kind of comes nicely full circle, Jeff, because that's what we're about to do. What's the show all about? It's about a game and the game is called... Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's the game that we play with all the uh, lovely people who support the show. Here's how it works. They fund this program. The reason this gets made is because people out there, from the goodness of their hearts, want to make it happen. And they send us contributions. And those contributions, uh, they're not a normal denominational number. They're a specific number because that number has something to do with cricket. And our job is to work out what the number means. For instance, first cab of the Nerd Pledge rank today is Thomas Havel. The number is £3.82 in the great British currency. So 382 is our number. The decimal point could be anywhere or nowhere. 382, cricket, what does it mean? It could be uh, season three, episode 82 of The Nanny, uh, (laughs) as we learnt last week. (laughs) That won't be... Here's the clue. Since it was also... make that many, but they they did make 27 episodes in a season in those days. I mean, it was a big undertaking. As we learned. Uh, Since it was also a recent pledge to you, the clue begins from Thomas. I should advise you that I played cricket at North London for a while, and this number relates to the testable of a coach I had when playing at under-15 level. Okay, a club cricket coach and a test debut. So someone who took... I'm thinking someone who took three for 82 on test debut. What I can tell you, Thomas, is that you are not talking about Dante Parkin, uh, who played his only test in 1892. I don't think he was coaching you in club cricket. Let's let's Uh, foreshadow. I'm going to 1892 shortly. Are you? I am. All right. In your quantum leap time machine, your your Jerry (laughs) O'Connell sliders TV remote, all the way to 1892. Well, uh, I'll just detour via there briefly because I like the name Dante Parkin. You know, it's a good, I don't know why it's a South African name, but it's just a, a good name in general. This is one of these test matches where South Africa have a phone number scorecard. England make 382, which is more than enough for an innings win. But poor old Dante Parkin did his best. He's a medium-paced seamer. He took the new ball. Uh, He promptly knocks over three wickets. He's got England three for 33, and they're in with a chance, but all of his friends can't can't do it. They can't support his work, and so the English end up making a score. But more exciting than the test match itself, Adam, is that Dante Parkin was a one-test wonder, sure, but he also played 
with and against in this match a couple of other one-test wonders, and one of them on his team was who other than Fluey de Toit. Now, long-time listeners of this show might remember Fluey de Toit from the time that we named an episode after him yes. because we enjoyed so much saying the name Fluey de Toit because when you say it one time, you just want to say Fluey it again. de Toit Flu- like a toiga. De Toit like a de toiga. He was Fluey and he was de Toit. Uh, and, and he somehow got into this South African team off the back of some... In- incredibly ropey cricket and you know I don't think they knew it was a test match at the time but retrospectively it was and that was his only test and then playing for England there's another man we've talked about on this show with great enjoyment from England Dick Power (laughs) (laughs) good old (laughs) good old Dick Power medium pace (laughs) bowler for Leicestershire Played for 15 years until 1901. He's got a very rough moustache, like a big sort of droopy deal. And he's like, are you ready for some dick power? (laughs) I think what could change this game is dick power. And the best thing is that he spells his last name P-O-U-G-H-E-R. So it's not, it's even more sort of guttural. It's like power. It's like, it's like one letter away from being dick plower. Yes, which could be could very easily, you know, have been his drag night alter ego or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so remarkable work. I know that Dick's come up on the um, on the show before, uh, if you will. Anyway, Dante Parkin did not end up coaching club cricket for somebody who's young enough to be alive to listen to our show. Who else took three for eighty two on Test debut? Not many people. Uh, it's probably not Mluleki and Kala who. But played a few test matches for Zimbabwe in the early 2000s. Probably not Damika Prasad, the Sri Lankan bowler, because he's, well, he's still going around in domestic cricket, I think, at least as recently as late last year. Um, and so the only option I could find is, and, and I'm, I wish we had Barat on the show to talk to us about Abe Kuruvilla, because I'm sure he'd be able to tell us all kinds of wild stories about the, the way that he can about Indian players of these sort of eras. But uh, still supposedly is the... Tallest player to ever play for India. He was six foot six, so he's got Ishant Sharma covered. He's only six three. Ishant Sharma. He's shorter than me. That seems bizarre. That doesn't seem right. I looked online. It said six three, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sure I've seen him, and I'm sure he's not shorter than me. Mm. Anyway, mm. Abe Kuruvilla was described as ganglingly tall and a, a gentle giant, a softly spoken, humble. He retired from first class cricket at the age of 31 because he said he didn't want to take up any more spots from the youngsters. I'm like, dude, you're 31. <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of useful for a cricketer these days. Um, so this was in 2000 when he retired. Became an administrator, eventually became a selector. Now he's the uh, general manager of ops for the BCCI. But when he retired, he did say in his statement that he planned to go to London and get his coaching badges. So I can't find any record that he actually did coach in London, but he did say that's what he was going to do. And therefore he could have been a club cricket coach for Thomas Havel sometime in the early 2000s. As for the 3 for 82 that he took on debut... Not too shabby. Kingston, Jamaica, 1997. Stuart Williams, Brian Lara, Carl Hooper. Not bad. Yeah, I'd throw up one other player for consideration there. I mean, he, he's saying that they coached in, in North London in the early 2000s. Well, in 1999, the 382nd Test Cricketer for Australia was Scott Muller. I don't think he was still playing for Queensland in the early 2000s. So it's conceivable oh. that he moved to London... Um, after the uh, can't bowl, can't throw debacle 
and found yep. himself um, like when you like kind of like Joe Watson style threw himself out of it, you know, left the country to become a Brewster or whatever. <laughs> Um, uh, and to that end, it, it might have been uh, Scotty Muller. Unlikely, though. I, I reckon the clue probably wouldn't be relating to his cap number in that in that in that eventuality. Well, it could. I mean, that does relate to his Test debut. Is that? Yeah, that's the cap he was given on Test debut. So yeah. yeah. Look, either way, Thomas, we've got a bet each way. Let us know. Send <laughs> us a message. Tell us how we went. All right, Jeff. Next up, it's Andrew West. It's the fish that Andrew West rejects that makes Andrew West the best. Uh, $7.80 AUD. So, therefore, he'll probably understand that advertising reference from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Jeff, he's left a clue I'm for I'm sure it. he's heard it before. I'm sure he's heard it before. <laughs> I would have gone with Andrew West. Life is peaceful <laughs> there, Andrew West. He says, I didn't leave any kind of clue as I thought you would have fun chasing the number down. I hope it worked as I have a deep appreciation for your show. Well, Andrew, we have a deep appreciation for your uh, withholding of a clue and so I, I sent this number to Adam because I know that he loves a number where he can have his full artistic expression. Yeah well first of all I wanted to just run through a little exercise so um, we know that there's only 703 England caps but I, I started to wonder how far away it might be until we have 780 so I went 77 years. back yeah about two years from now so if, if we're looking for cap 780. Well, let's go back 77 from 703 and add that on. Who was it? Well, cap 626 was Kevin Peterson back in 2005. Mm. So we're 17 years away uh, from, on that logic, seeing cap 780. And yes, hopefully uh, they won't be anything like Kevin Peterson. That 780 has been made in a first class game. Indeed, uh-huh. it's the 50th highest score ever. And on that basis, I thought, let's have That's a look. That's a shit record. Yeah, I just thought, let's <laughs> so have a look. Records. Let's have a look. Let's click it. Uh, at least uh-huh. let's click it. And upon clicking okay. it, I was glad that I clicked it because we've, okay. we're back into a rich form of vein of story time with bonkers Ranji Trophy elimination games of the late 80s and early 90s. Jeff, you might remember that Alan Edgar, way back when, directed us to a similar kind of match where it went for six days. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like... 700 against 700 because first innings points were enough to get you over the line. And I suppose occasionally the Sheffield Shield finals were played out uh, in that way, but nowhere near as crudely as it is. Occasionally. Yeah, it's been more hardcore in the Ranchi Trophy. I think probably because, I don't know for sure, but I sense that home ground advantage doesn't get you the win if you draw. My sense is that even if you are the home team, you need to win on first innings to to get Mm. through the next round or, or get the Ranchi Trophy. So, and the fact that this 780 was made in my golden summer from Wisdom back in the day, 1994-95, I'm like, bingo, let's do it. Let's hit the let's hit the button uh, on, on the fame game board on Sale of the Century. Let's play. So, here it is. A semi-final where Delhi batted first against Punjab and went for 197 overs and they only made 554, though. It included <laughs> 240 from AJ Sharma, who played a, a fair bit for India in the late 80s. So that's what Punjab needed to pass to, to win the game and make it through to the final. Uh, so it's a semi-final here, I should say. And they're in a relatively tough spot. They're at 298 for six. They're still 257 away with four wickets in hand. It looks like Punjab are stuffed. Enter Pankaj Dharmani at number eight. Yes! Yes! Who has come up before. He has come up before recently. This was... Uh, Bharat spent a lot of time on Pankaj Dharmani. It was the episode that I was listening to, I'm pretty sure, when uh-huh. I was bruised and battered after Pakistan yep. when, when that came up. So that was another link here. And Bupinder Singh. 
Now, they come in together for Punjab at 298 for six and they take them to 758 for seven. They had 460. It's the biggest seventh wicket partnership in the history of first class cricket. That's why it's relevant. Not because of the 50th highest score. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it's... 50th highest. It's, it's, it's the highest partnership ever for the seventh wicket, which really clarified for me we need to talk about this. Who knows how many overs they batted for, at least a couple of days. The wicketkeeper, Pankaj, as Barat detailed, got an opportunity in one one-day international back in 1996. He made 202 not out in 586 minutes. And Bupinder Singh, who never got a debut for India, despite how many players that got a chance in that era, uh, made 297 in 738 balls and 785 minutes. And their innings was complete at 780 for eight after 244.2 overs late on the fifth day. Punjab make it through to the final. Both of those aforementioned players, Pankaj and Bupinder, nearly doubled their previous highest scores in, in first-class cricket. So they had their days out. And at that point, I was all in. I'm like, Let, let's see how they went in the grand final. Uh, you, you can't leave me hanging like this. I mm-hmm. need to know how Punjab went in the final. It's at Premiership the, quarter. It, what did they do? Yeah, it, it's at the Wankaday Stadium. Keeps the doctor away. And they're playing against Bombay, who make 690 for six declared in the first innings of the game. Oh. So the same rules must apply in 169 overs after Punjab put them in. So they clearly had a model from the previous week. Like, we'll chase anything. We'll yep. chase anything. Well, they'll <laughs> whatever chase you it. got. Whatever you got, we'll chase it. Well, they were set 691 in no small part thanks to a double ton from Sanjay Mandraka, 140 from Tendulkar, 107 from Vinod Kumbli, two players who we've talked about a lot over the last year or so. This time, unfortunately, Punjab only made it to 372. Our heroes from the previous week, Bupinda and Pankaj, made five and naught, respectively. Bombay, how's this? They had a second go. They're like, fuck it, we're not done yet. They made 513 (laughs) for six in the second innings declared in 89.3 overs. That's a hell of a run rate. So in one day, effectively, they've made 513 for six. A a test cricket day. Yeah. They made over 500. Everyone bangs on about England at Edgebaston in 05, 400 in the day. Oh, well. Yeah. Make 513. Well, it means they made 1,203 runs for the match. I haven't checked this, but I'd be surprised if any team's ever made more than 1,203 runs in a first class game before. Sachin completes twin tons. He hits 139 the second time around. And they wanted to win it outright but they only left themselves 28 overs. They probably could have left themselves a little bit more time to bowl the second time around, though, because they set Punjab 831. Do you reckon they might have had enough at 600? Maybe bowl for two sessions? But they don't get the outright win, but they do get the Ranji Trophy Bombay in the season of 1994-95, defeating uh, our heroes from Punjab, who won the semi-final after making 780 for eight. Uh, it's a brutal thing, this game. <laughs> who, who would choose, who would sign up to do that, to go and be on the fielding team for that entire time? Oh. Uh, <sighs> yep. Yeah, 830 in 28 overs. I just feel like maybe just another 20 overs could have been handy, you know? <laughs> maybe when you pass 700 in front, you think, ah. Oh. I doubt they're going to knock these off inside 40 overs. Anyway. I mean, the other point is, uh, why bother? Why not just let the good times roll? They're 5, 13 mm. for 6 in that second dig. Why not just mm. go through and, and end up with 700 for 6? I mean, you know, like yeah. at that stage, they're... One or the other. Yeah, anyway.
they're on the fence at that point. They're on the fence. They haven't haven't gone all in and they, they haven't gone all out. Next number comes in from a, a an acronymed pledger. I know that these are the initials of this person's name, but I will not reveal them because uh, it's been put in as initials and so maybe there's some sort of witness protection kind of deal. I don't know. It's TDLF, um, which I, I keep reading as a cross between TLDR and yes. DTF. Um, <laughs> too long. Too long. Don't read. To don't down to fuck. Down to fuck, um, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, look, the number is, is, is in US dollars and it's $2.15, 215. I had a friend that worked at DTF who was very much DTF and would, and would use that as their... Would enjoy talking about where they worked and, and would enjoy the acronym. It was uh, what? What do times. you mean they worked at DTF? What is DTF? As part of the Treasury and Finance in, in Victoria. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Down to fund. <laughs> There's a clue here. Two fifteen is an equally niche pledge. Says too long to read. Down to fuck. One that possibly sits right in your teenage wheelhouse. A summer of District Calypso. I have no idea. District? I have no idea what's going on here. No? Okay. Oh, maybe All I right. do, well, actually. District Calypso? I've got an idea. Okay, you go first. Okay, yeah. See, I thought, I thought you, would, you would swarm on this, but... Yeah, uh, but I think you, I have now. You left yep. this one for me. District Calypso, not District Calippo, which is that delicious ice cream in a tube <laughs> that you could get at recess uh, in an Australian primary school. They still sell them. Good to see a Calippo still going around. Nobody has milkshake ducked the Calippo yet, you know. There's no, no sordid backstory for the Calippo that's about to come out, as far as we know. A few ill-advised flavoured choices over the years, but nonetheless. Right, District Calypso. So I thought players in Melbourne District cricket who also played for the West Indies. That, that was my first thought because I thought TDLF is saying that if it sits in our teenage wheelhouse, it has to be Melbourne, Right. So it's going to be Melbourne District Cricket, West Indies players. Who who played in Melbourne District Cricket? Da, da, Garfield da, da, da. Sobers. Rowan Canai. Uh, Clive Lloyd. Gus Logie. Right? They all did, but none of them would have been in our, in our era, in our teenage era. But Carl Hooper, who's already been mentioned on the show once today, was. Because he played one season in 1999-2000, Adam, for Carlton Cricket Club. He sure did. He played for them the year after Abdul Kader played for them that's the the second best Christian Ryan long read piece in my opinion is the Abdul Kadir and his season for Carlton the best one is obviously the Jeff Thompson is annoyed yeah. piece about Jeff Thompson playing club cricket the one about Abdul Kadir though when he he dominates the season he's like one wicket away from taking the record for the most wickets in the season when they're playing their last match of, of the year and he's trying to get it and Christian Ryan puts this story together incredibly well go and find it punch it into Michael Google and and have a read. But the year after, I think, Carl Hooper comes and plays, and he has a very dominant year as well. Scores over a 1,000 runs for the season, wins the best and fairest across the league. It's in a gap in his West Indies career in between stints. And the funny bit is that he's moved to Adelaide. I think he lives in Melbourne now, but he's, he's moved to Adelaide, but he's playing for Carlton, which means he flies in every Saturday morning on the morning of a game. <laughs> plays the Saturday and then flies home Saturday night. So he's this kind of touring superstar that even the guys on his team were like, well, we never really got to know him because he just rocked up, batted all day and then pissed off to the airport again and went back to Adelaide. And they even get 
stuck in this like political fight with a team in Guyana about whether Carl Hooper should go and play for them in a domestic competition in the Caribbean and Carlton saying like stuff you guys he's got a contract with us he's he's, he's playing here John Elliott's come out um, and said pig's ass yeah pig's ass mate no <laughs> well, uh, well, well Colin Lovett was running the Carlton Cricket Club at the time um, and, and he said halfway through the season he expects Carl Hooper will stay for two or three more years at, at Carlton that didn't happen he only played the one season in the end but he did make 1,041 runs, averaging 61. Took 24 wickets as well, averaging 28 with a Fifer. Made 300s in the season. And in the last game of the season, it has a day out against Dandenong at Prince's Park. And I know you, Adam, are an advocate for bring cricket back to Prince's Park. Well, when it was at Prince's Park, there was a day when Carl Hooper batted in a floppy hat, no thigh pad, smashed a six that hit the grandstand building on the full Big hit at Prince's Park. Uh, one of nine sixes that he hit that day. Made his third hundred of the season and finished his work that day for Carlton with a score of 215, which is the number sent through by TDLF 215. That must be right. Yeah. So where are we there? 99-2000. There, there would have been some likely types playing in that Danny Nong team. That might have been the first season that Cameron White played ones, I reckon. Ian Harvey, if he was available uh, for... Dandenong selection that week could have been in that team as well before he moved. So, yeah, a pretty strong Dandenong team. Brendan McArdle might have still been... Oh, I reckon he was just about still playing in 99-2000. Bushy. Man, they call Bushy. Bushy McArdle. Legend of club cricket. Well, there you go. Thank you. That's good. I like it. And, yes, that Chris Ryan piece, I recommend that... I mean, it's just a work of art, isn't it? I wish he wrote more about cricket these days, but yes, we're in we're in debt to him for having done so for such a long time. Next up, we have a double header, two familiar names from our list over the journey: Jim Carnegie and Richard Jansmore. They have pledged five thirty-one. Neither of them have a clue, Jeff. So we've got two free mm-hmm. hits. This will be fun. I'll go with Richard first, shall I? So five thirty-one for Richard. The first thing I looked at. Uh, was Rob Bailey. He would have been a dusty old bastard if he were a bit older. He played four test matches between 1988 and 1990 for England. That's the Badlands, isn't it? Like That's that's the, like the <laughs> worst time to have played four test matches. They were all against the West Indies. But to his credit, uh, he said no to going to South Africa when there was the chance for him to do so with the Rebel Tour in 1989. He only averaged 14, but it's his first class career that's celebrated more widely, mostly for North Hans. He was a club legend there before finishing up at Derbyshire. He made 47 uh, first class centuries through a long, distinguished career. These days, Rob Bailey's far better known, though, for his umpiring. He's overseen 24 one day internationals and 18 T20 internationals, and uh, we often see him uh, on the county circuit. But instead, I'm going to go back to something that I haven't done for a while and, and use the date for the clue. So, mm-hmm. 531, May the 31st. And I'm Bloody glad I did because there are some magnificent final word areas here of things that happen to happen on the 31st of May over the journey. First of all, it was Australia's lowest Ashes score, 36 at Edgbaston in 1902. That was on 31 May. It was Steve Bucknell's birthday. He was born on the 31st of May, 1946. I say it was, it is his birthday. And that's relevant to the final word because Brian R. Kane has been umpiring with Steve Bucknell regularly in New York club cricket over the last couple of seasons. And I know Brian always gets a real a real kick out of that. Indeed, uh, Brian did a, a, an excellent podcast interview with Peter Della Pena about 
two months ago, I think it was, and in the video version of it, there's a photograph of Steve Bucknall that's behind uh, Brian's head in the in the shot, which I thought was a, a nice touch. So he must be he must be seventy six, Steve Bucknall, or about to turn seventy six. Yeah, I mean, that's and he's still and he's still umpiring. He's gone up the pyramid and down the pyramid. He's still umpiring every weekend in New York in club cricket. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. It's remarkable. Talk about a lifelong commitment to the game. It's outstanding. In 1924, on the 31st of May, Russell and Dean was born. In 1956, he'd go on to be the first ever player given out handled ball, mm-hmm. which I, mm-hmm. we might have even talked about that on the story time in the past. To Jim Laker. Speaking of Laker, six years before that, on the 31st of May, 1950, he took eight for two from 14 overs in a <laughs> test warm-up game for England against the rest. Now, Bring Jeff, back the we've rest. Joked, we've <laughs> joked about the rest quite a bit over time. The rest that played for Australia, the rest that played for, for England. The rest in this team are pretty fucking good. I mean, Peter May, Eric Bedser, Fred Truman, the Reverend David Shepherd, and that team were all out for 27, mostly to... Uh, the aforementioned Jim Laker, eight for two from 14 overs. 18-15 on the 31st of May, uh, the first ever game was played at the ground we now know as Lords. It was the third home of Lords, but Lords as it is in St John's Wood, mm-hmm. uh, where Middlesex defeated the MCC. In 1973, on the 31st of May, Glenn Turner, uh, final word favourite, became the first player since the Second World War to complete a 1,000 runs by the end of May. He did that at Wantage Road, and it's only been done once since. I think that was uh, Graham Hick in 1988. 1984, the 31st of May, was the the innings that, Jeff, that you focused on uh, some time ago on, on the weekend show, uh, the, the innings that's often called the best ever in one-day international cricket, Viv making 189 from 170 deliveries, but getting them to 272 for nine from 102 for seven. There was only one other player in double figures with Viv up the other end making 189 from 170. Uh, And I think maybe saving the best for last. This was the date uh, in 1999 when Bangladesh defeated Pakistan in a game that Sally Malik later said was fixed. Um, The game that... uh, um, And if Sully Malik Aminal, says it was fixed, he's the guy who's going to know. It was pretty fucking fixed. Uh, Aminal Islam Bulbul, uh, who we interviewed for the greatest season that was uh, special on the 99 World Cup back in 2019, at the presentation, he had the foresight to use that platform to say, and this proves that Bangladesh should have test match status. And he just got the, the conversation going. It's often joked that Andrew Miller got Bangladesh test status because he took that and ran with it when he was writing as a youngster for Crick Info. And, and so it was a year later, they were given test match status and much of it hinged on uh, what happened that day. Again, at, at Wantage Road, the same ground where uh, Turner brought up his uh, 1,000 runs before the end of May would have been some 26 years before. Sakhalay Mushtaq was the last player out for Pakistan in that game, Jeff. And it was one of those third umpire decisions with a stumping that, I mean, it could go either way. It is, you know, he was given out. It could have easily been given not out right on the edge of the line. But they, they couldn't have continued the game had he been given not out because... As was the kind of, unfortunately, the custom in the 99 World Cup, there was a massive pitch invasion as soon as the last wicket was taken and they dug up the pitch. So there was no way they could have continued the game <laughs> even if they just went straight at it. All the stumps were taken. It was So I suppose the third umpire felt duty-bound to, to give Sucklane out. Uh, and that was yeah, a significant turning point in Bangladesh cricket history. So, yeah, I think all told, 31 May, I can't think of a more final word date. That, I mean, you've convinced me. 
And that's all you have to do on this show. You've, you've got, like, there's an audience once it gets published, but right now you have an audience of one and I'm on board. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, yeah, that, that is something that works. And I think I've got something that works as well. For Jim Carnegie, uh, the first thing I have to do is say a Billy Moore style, Queenslander! Because, because Jim... Jim has some Queensland love. His last number, I remember, was about Stuart Law and his test match average or not average of 54. Uh, of um, course, yep. And so Jim, he's he's keenly attuned to the injustices against his home state, I feel. Uh, and so that, that is what has led me to this. Our number is 531. I'm thinking about another player who, who could have had a shot at national level and hasn't had one yet, could still change. Uh, we're looking at the Queensland fire, the, the Queensland state women's team in 50 over cricket as opposed to the city-based Big Bash. So you look at the WNCL, the women's 50 over comp, started in 1996. So we've had 26 seasons. In the first 24 seasons, New South Wales made 24 finals and they won 20 of those finals. Absolute glory hogs. Leave a bit for someone else. Leave a few crumbs on the plate. You terrible, terrible people. And they mostly played Victoria. Those were usually the ones in the final. So in the in those first 24 seasons, Queensland made five finals, South Australia four, WA three. Tassie never. And then things have begun to change just in the last couple of years because there's more money, more funding, more professionalisation, players moving around, all the rest of it. So a couple of years ago, WA won for the first time. Well, this is three years ago now. They beat New South Wales. The next year, New South Wales was not in the final for the first time ever. Victoria versus Queensland. And Queensland win their first title. And then last season, Tassie made the final for the first time and South Australia won their first title. So two years in a row with no New South Wales. Happy days. Right, so we go back to that season a couple of years ago when Queensland win for the first time. They've never won that title before. They won the T20 title once in 2014. That's the only time they've won any kind of trophy. March 2021, Beth Mooney's not there. Jess Jonathan's not there. So Queensland's two best players out. They bat first uh, and they've got Dr. Georgia Redmayne, the uh, the other doctor, now that Dr. Shelley Nitschke is, um, you know, firmly in the running to take over the Australian national team. Uh, a couple of doctors going around in the ranks. Maybe Georgia, she'll get a game. Maybe may- Redmayne will, will yeah. get an opportunity for Australia. She certainly earned it. She looked brilliant in the fair break comp before she came down ill. I'm not sure if she had COVID. She probably had COVID. Everyone else did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Doc, Doc recognised Doc, game recognised yeah. game. So Georgia Redmayne, captain in Queensland in this game, opens the batting, carries her bat, makes 134 not out off 146, goes on to keep wicket for the whole game, two catches, two stumpings, Queensland win the title on the back of her performance. She's the player of the series as well. Big scores throughout the tournament, carries on her run of big scores in the final, and in that year's competition, Georgia made... 531 runs, which is Jim's number, at an average of 133. Yeah, she, I think Georgia Redmayne has, has played that... Um, so I was going to say played that game of moving from state to state better than anyone else, but the, 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 the reality is she's moving states because her job's been moving her around as a doctor. She mm. uh, was at Tweed Hospital where she was heavily involved in the COVID response in 2020 yep. and the WBBL is where she got her first platform uh, yeah. playing for the Hurricanes when, yeah, she was, she was the sort of player who I doubt would have ever risen through the ranks without that semi-pro structure and now she's like an inch away from getting a national cap. So, mm. good story. 
Yeah, well, she's um, she was FIFO. I think she was still studying when she was playing for the Hurricanes, but she was FIFO playing. She was studying on the yeah, that's right. in New South yeah. Wales and flying down to play for them, and then went to Perth for a season, I reckon, and then ended up in Queensland. So, uh, and is from New South Wales. So, you know, keep moving. Ain't never gonna break my stride. Um, <laughs> that's my guess for Jim for five thirty one. I like it. I like it. Thank you. Double header there. Complete Jim Carnegie and Richard Jansmore. Next up, another uh, pledger who's come back for a second bite of the cherry. Anna Collins, 1333GBP. Uh, Winnie has been talking a lot recently around the cricket jumper that Anna knitted her, which we were kindly given at the final word game against the Oval Dream Boys last year. She's been talking about it constantly because it now sits on one of her monkeys. And mm-hmm. Winnie is at the moment in that phase where she likes dressing and undressing her, her toys. And, and the monkey has a, 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 a cherished spot in the bed rotation right now mm-hmm. in the cot. At different times, Winnie, as you know, Jeff, she's quite strong in her views. And yep. Sometimes some toys must be there. Other nights, some toys mustn't be there. But right now, Big Monkey, as she calls it, is in the bed, okay. is in the cop, and it's wearing the cricket jumper that Anna knitted Winnie um, kindly and gave this last year. Big Monkey. Um, Imagine if that was an amalgamation of Monkey and the Big Fella who, who ran the radio <laughs> show down on, on uh, the Warrnambool Coast area in Victoria. Put them together, is, Big Monkey and the Fella. Well, well, this is there's a little monkey now as well. So okay. when we were in Dubai, Winnie was being taken to Ikea most days, not just for the cheap meal, but also because the stuffed toy area and Rach had managed to convince her of a number of things that weren't quite accurate, namely that um, that the Mog, the, the cats that lived at Ikea and they mm. couldn't possibly come home with us, but that little monkey could come back to England with us. So she's got a little monkey in there and a big monkey. It's all very cute. Um, I told you earlier I was going to go back to 1892 and so we are now with this 1333 Specifically, or 13, 13, 33. 30, 13, 13, 32. Uh, specifically <laughs> to a, a ground called Bailey Park in mm-hmm. Hawera, uh, where Taranaki hosted Hawke's Bay in 1892. Now, I want to go into a bit of background here on, on Taranaki and on the ground, Bailey Park. Bailey Park only hosted four first-class fixtures, all between 1892. This was the first one. And 1898, it's where Taranaki played most of their home fixtures. Mm-hmm. They didn't play much first-class cricket. Uh, they started. They played one game in 1883 when they were away at Auckland, and then they played a game earlier in 1892, also away, this time against Hawke's Bay. But this was their homecoming of sorts. Finally, they're getting the chance to host another team. They're hosting Hawke's Bay. They're doing it at Bailey Park. It's a big deal for a fledgling first-class team. And it looks like a lovely part of the world too. It's uh, Taranaki is in the southwest corner of the North Island. I, I had a look on Google Images last night. Um, there's a mountain there. It looks very pretty. It would be a nice place for the Hawks Bay team to have visited, I'm sure, in 1892. And so they did. And they batted first. And they were routed. Taranaki, go Taranaki. They've knocked over the fancied visitors, Hawks Bay, for just 128. Go, you good thing. A chap by the name of Roger Lucina on first-class debut in what would go on to be his only first-class game took three for 34 from 21.3 overs. And Harry Bailey, who I'm going to assume the grounds was named after his family because the spelling is unusual, B-A-Y-L-Y, also took a couple of wickets. And that's basically day one. What did they do on day two, Jeff? They had a rest day. Naturally. Day one, you play. Day two, you rest. Day three, fair to say it didn't go so well for Taranaki. Uh, They were all out for 35 in the first innings with a highest score of eight by Will Salmon. 
Well, you'd have to say that Will Salmon was really uh, swimming upstream in that performance. <laughs> the big fish. Against the current. For the visitors for Hawke's Bay, and this is where I'm finally getting on to the 1333, their left-arm orthodox spinner who bowled the whole way through was a chap by the name of Charles Smith. He took seven for 20 from 11 points mm. over. Smith was 28 years of age by this stage, and having moved over from Sydney, he was quite a busy boy in insurance. He'd been rising up the ranks, and at that stage Charles was Smith, basically Hawke's He's Bay. also a, a character in Red Dead Redemption 2. So I don't know if it's the same Charles Smith, but, you know, if, if it is, he was an enterprising fellow. Yeah. Homage to the left-arm orthodox spinner. Anyway, he picked up from where he left off when they enforced the follow-on. In the second dig, he took six for 13 from 10 overs for match figures, you guessed it, of 13 for 33, the only time that's been taken in first-class cricket. He finished the season, Charles Smith, with 17 wickets at 2.47, the leading bowler in New Zealand. Yeah, exy indeed. Uh, It was Taranaki's worst defeat in their brief run as a first-class side. They finished up five games later. Their 13 innings were 63, 55, 70, 39, 35, 29, 91, 135, 246, 124, 172, 108 and 109. So for an average of 9.81 runs per wicket in all first-class cricket they played. Mm. And with the ball, their opposition averaged 18.73. And surprisingly, that's on Taranaki Cricket Club's Wikipedia page to this day. It seems like an odd thing to promote that they were fucking useless uh, with the bat when they did play first-class cricket. What I will say, though, ago, is, so it goes. is that when, when they learned how to get above 100, they kept doing it, you know? Once they, once they crossed true. that threshold... Yeah. They didn't go back into double figures after that. So, yeah, yeah good it's, work. In a way, it's a shame they, it's in a way, it's a shame they, they didn't get a chance to stay on. As for our man, Charles Smith, he'd go on to be instrumental in the early days of what was known as the New Zealand Cricket Council. He was the man who got New South Wales to come out and tour in 1895. And the next year, in 1896, he got an Australian team to come out as well. Um, his insurance career continued apace. He reached quite a senior rank uh, in that profession, but unfortunately passed away when en route to California for medical attention. He died in Hawaii in 1920. But yes, he's 1333, still there for all to see in the record books. Uh, likewise, Taranaki's brief stay as a first-class team. I thought of it when looking through, Jeff, is there the Dera Ishmael Khan of New Zealand. So we're going to have to send a team out and visit at some stage. Taranaki, we're coming for you. <laughs> we're coming for you. It's a little bit easier to get to than DRK, it must be said. True. Um, yeah, we did look at going to Dera Ishmael Khan when we were in Pakistan and everybody I spoke to when I said, we're thinking of going to Dera Ishmael Khan, they're like, why? <laughs> Just why? Why would you? It's like I, it's far away, but we 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 want to go there. We will still go there one day. I tell you what. I was extremely excited when I flew over the top of it en route mm. to Islamabad, where I mm. first arrived. I mean, our plane went over Dera Ishmael Khan, and mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the, I wonder what the person sitting next to me must have thought when I'm taking all these photographs of the of the <laughs> screen with Dera Ishmael Khan zooming in. Like, what the fuck's wrong with this dude? Um, anyway, we'll get there next time when things are a bit uh, more straightforward. When we next visit Pakistan, although, you know, touch wood when saying that with things a bit rough there right now, uh, that um, we'll get to Derek Ishmael Khan. Yes. Eventually. And we'll also get the Taranaki. You were flying over it as high as the score that Railways made against Derek Ishmael Khan. (laughs) And next number, it comes in from, and this is one of my favourite pledged names to come around, Big Jeff in capital letters. <laughs> Big Jeff, in order to convey the bigness of Big Jeff, has gone all caps. As last time, I'm sure Big Jeff's been on the show before, I have to make sure that I'm clear that Big Jeff is not me. I may be big and a Jeff, but I'm not Big Jeff. 
in this sense. I, I don't send in numbers to my own show. That would be a bit weird. The number, it's $2.11, 211. And of course, the first thing that jumps out at nerds like Adam and me when we hear 211 is Billy Murdoch, first double century in Test cricket. Yep. Now, I did consider for a little bit talking about Neil Adcock, who was the first South African fast bowler to get 100 wickets, played in the 50s and 60s. He uh, ended up with a career bowling average of 21.1. So I could have talked about that. But I came back to Billy Murdoch and thought, you know what? It's going to be Billy Murdoch. I know we've, we've spoken about him before, but there's an angle on this that I haven't taken. Now, a couple of things. One for you, Adam, is that so it, it, it only takes seven years of test cricket for him to get 211. Only two other people make 211 in the next 104 years. So three of them in the first 104 years. And then there have been five of them in the last 20 years. So, Stop it. Love it. Yeah, so um, Vera Coley and Steve Smith are the last two to make two 11s. Smith's one in Manchester. Uh, listeners might remember uh, Coley's a couple of years before that. But yeah, Billy Murdoch, first double hundred, highest score in Test cricket. Everyone celebrates it. He's the skipper, he's captaining Australia, big achievement, blah, blah, blah. Except dog shit innings. I'm calling it right here. Like, absolute. Bunk. All right, it's 1884. Australia's playing England at the Oval. Uh, the highest score in Test cricket so far has been Bannerman in the first match with 165. There have been eight other centuries after that, um, but nobody's gone past 200. And, uh, and the next best is also Billy Murdoch with 153. They're playing in London, third and final match in the series. England are leading 1-0. Now, if you can do some basic, basic arithmetic, you'll know that Australia have to win that match in order to try to level the series and not lose the series, right? Got to win the game. Uh, they bat first, early wicket. Who else but Alec Bannerman, the worst opener in Test cricket history. I mean, you have to be embarrassed being the brother of Charles Bannerman at this point when you're Alec Bannerman. Makes a single-figure score. Surprise, surprise. Here comes Billy Murdoch at first drop. It's one for 15. He comes to the wicket and he proceeds on to his 211. Percy McDonald makes 100 with him. Tup Scott. Oh, I love Tup. The old Tupperware. He should have had a clothing line called Tupperware. That would have been... That would have sold like hotcakes that you could have then stored in the Tupperware. Tup Scott makes 100. You know, the Murdoch innings, it's slow. 525 balls faced. But, you know, Australia make 551 all out. Bat big, bat once, happy days. Everything's good, right? That's fine. It's a bloody three-day game, Billy Murdoch. It's a three-day match that Australia have to win to stay in the series. And old mate Billy Murdoch takes eight hours and ten minutes to make his 211. Then he gets out. He's the sixth wicket to fall. He's the captain. And he lets his teammates keep batting. It just soaks up some more time. So this is the game where, the, in this innings, actually, it's, it's the famous one where England use 11 bowlers and they bring the wicketkeeper, Alfred Littleton, on right ah, at the end. Ashes defining lobs. spell of lobs, yes. Yeah, and he takes four wickets. But yep. it's irrelevant at that point. It's not Ashes defining at all because, because they've already been batting for days and they've racked up a big score and it doesn't matter. So, yeah, they bowl at England it's once. It's funny, I've, I've always thought that was, I always, it's weird, isn't it? I, I, the, the way it's been explained to me or the way I've read it before mm. is that Littleton's spell, maybe it was like, yeah, maybe it wasn't. Ashes yeah. defining after all, based on what you're saying, if they were 1-0 up. 
Well, they, the thing is, they already had over 500 on the board, Australia, and they'd already been batting for too long at that point. They they needed to have stopped earlier. Like, him getting wickets actually helped them out because it meant that the innings finally ended. And they bowl out England once for 350-odd and make them follow on, but they only get 26 overs at them in the third innings of the match because bloody Billy Murdoch has soaked up too much time, just grinding away out there at a strike rate of 40, sinks Australia's chances, and... Stuffs the entire thing up. Go for the win, Billy. It's a three-day game, you bloody nong. And then you want to add a little bit of a little extra controversy to this. Remember I started the show talking about Dante Parkin in 1892, the guy who took three wickets for South Africa against England. I repeat, against England in 1892. Who were those wickets? Alec Hearn, George Hearn and Billy Murdoch, who by then was playing for England, just getting in early while captaining Australia to make sure that England won the series in 1884. Cheap. It's funny you mentioned Alec Hearn and George Hearn there. I had the great pleasure of sitting at a dinner with a dozen people with Barry Hearn. Uh, being interviewed by John Inverdale the other night, Barry Hearn being kind of the, the godfather of snooker and, why well, I say snooker, snooker on television, darts, boxing, kind of fishing, kind of everything, and he's released an autobiography. And I was kindly invited along to a, a, a small dinner where Barry unleashed under Chatham House rules and it was a lot of fun. So uh, it, it's been a big week. <laughs> Uh, well, there were a lot of Hearns going around at that yes. at that period of time. There were three of them in that team. Uh, Hearns are plenty, but anyway, we need to revise the history of Billy Murdoch. I think I, I'm going to. I want to put him on the shit list. Honestly, I think that's appalling. I, I would like to get. Uh, I'd like to get Rick Sissons to listen to that and offer his perspective as having written the book around Billy Murdoch. I, I, I mean, I haven't. I can't remember what he says about the two eleven. Great book, but. Um, I might go back and check whether he arrives mm. at the same conclusion as you. It's a perfectly logical argument you're mounting. I suppose the one bit of mitigation is that this is before we had matches defined and classified. So in 1884, mm. it might have been Maybe such they didn't that care about the that, series well, yeah, per se. Yeah, they were still interpreting each match as a discrete thing, mm. like an, you know, and, and the series maybe didn't matter quite so much and... Uh, I mean, I don't know is the answer, but mm. we'll find out. We'll do some more work on that. Our next number uh, here is from Matt Gaynor, 746GBP. Matt, proud Essex man who I'm in a group email chat with most days of the week around many things, including the county game. Uh, his previous pledge was about Ravi Papara's bowling average, wasn't it, having uh, the worst bowling average in Test cricket history or something like that. The clue related to the fact that we'd been talking about this cricketer uh, recently on the show, and I know that uh, with Matt, it's going to have some Essex link. So that's the direction uh, I started. I went through all of the the Essex 7 for 46 halls, and there's only two of them, and one of them was Derek Pringle uh, in a cracker of a game against Yorkshire in 1986. I, I thought I'd just quickly mention this on the way through. So Essex make 295. Then both teams set up the game. It's a three-day game. Yorkshire won for 51, declared. Essex none for 34, declared in five overs, leaving on the final day. Yorkshire to chase 278. This was quite common in three-day cricket where the second and third innings would be declared in such a way that it would set up a, a suitable chase and they had pretty much a, a day to, to haul down 278. And at one point, they're 120 for eight and Essex are well on their way before Peter Hartley walks in and whacks 87 not out, another man who would go on to become a first-class umpire that we see 
around the traps these days. Uh, they don't get there because uh, Big Dell uh, finishes it off and Yorkshire are all out for 252. Essex win by 26 and everybody presumably had a very nice time there at Chelmsford. And I suspected that Matt may have been there. Uh, I'm not trying to guess Matt's age, but he's older than me. He's older than you. But uh, having uh, gone to a gig with Matt and knowing the company that he keeps with Alan Edgar, the second time I've name-checked him in the, in the day, and Ian McCain, another listener to the show, he might be closer to their age than my age. So in 1986, he could have been there as a boy. However, we've never talked about that before, so that can't be right. We've never talked about uh, Pringles 7 for uh, in, in a first-class game, so it's unlikely that that's what he's referring to. What we have, however, uh, spoken about is the great J.K. Lever uh, and his test debut in 1976. The reason I didn't find Lever straight away, it was my hunch it would be Lever, is because the 7 for 46 was, of course, in a test match in Delhi. Uh, and what a remarkable test debut. We, we, we referenced it in passing recently, but England bat first to make 381. Is this the... The Vaseline Tour? It is the Vaseline Tour. Lever makes mm. 53, batting at nine. What's interesting about that is that Lever, in a career that stretched from 1967 until 1990, only made three scores above 50. He couldn't bat. Yet on Test debut, well, I say he couldn't bat. Statistically, he, he wasn't a productive player at all. Yet at the first time of asking as a Test cricketer, 53 of the best, batting down at number nine. In reply, India all out 122. He snagged seven for 46, our number here. Bowling first change behind uh, Bob Willis and Chris Old. Speaking of that dinner with Barry Hearn the other night. I was sat next to David Willis, brother of Bob, who is an absolute gentleman. Uh, I hope he's listening. I've, I've sent him a link to the to the final word. He was keen to listen, so I didn't expect to see a, a Bob Willis reference uh, in the first step uh, after giving him the link, but so it goes. India follow on, and Lever takes three for 24 in the second dig. England win by an innings and 125 runs. He finishes with match figures of 10 for 70 on debut, the best match figures ever for an Englishman in their first test match. In addition to that, 53. Has to go down there, I reckon, Jeff, alongside Bob Massey as, uh, as one of the great performances by a fast bowler in their first test when you add that 53 on top. That first series, he takes 26 wickets at 14.6. There's speculation that he's putting Vaseline on the ball that you referred to before. It's never substantiated, but uh, I think that, you know, that there are some who still make that case. Uh, But yeah, after a great first series, he played 16 further test matches, including bowling the first delivery of the centenary test in 1977, 47 wickets at 33, and that career stretched across about a decade he could have played more though Jeff uh, but uh, he elected to go on the first Rebel Tour in 1982 which was documented uh, in the Wisdom Almanac piece 40 years on Uh, recently as I said before his first class career stretched until 1990 when he was 41 years of age brilliant record mostly for Essex 1722 wickets at 24 with 85 fifers, which is which is some going. Uh, yeah, and just those three half centuries, including one on that perfect debut where he took seven for 46, which is surely Matt Gaynor's number. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Matt. Thanks you. Thank you, Lions people. Thank you, ball kids. Alex Crampton, he's our last number, our last new number for the day. A 679 in GBP, 679... No clue given, right. So given it's British, I mean, I started, I was thinking bowling figures. It's not going to be Pat Cummins on debut because, you know, 
It's coming in in pounds. Uh, it's not going to be one of the worst test matches ever played. You talked about big scores in the ranchy, but in this test, Pakistan made 679 for seven, after which India had an opening stand of 410. And then one wicket fell and then it was called off. They lost half the overs to rain and bad light in Lahore, I think it was. Um, it's unlikely to be the bowling figures of Pat Pocock, the off-spinner, who we talked about uh, for the time that he took seven wickets in 11 balls mm, in a county mm. game. He chiselled out six for 79 against Bill Laurie's Australians in 1968 when Manchester used to get some spin at Old Trafford. But I thought that given that uh, this player I'm about to mention has been a bit of a final word fave. He's been on the, he's been at our live show. We've both worked with him. It's very likely to be Stephen Finn in 2015. Uh, Surely yes. his, his, his final big Ashes moment. He he had contributions in three Ashes series that were significant, and this was the surprise one in 2015 after a, you know as something of a comeback. He had a good opportunity in that Australia had already been bowled out for 136 in the first innings and conceded a big first innings lead, but in Australia's second innings he comes in and does it with pace. Stephen Finn gets Steve Smith top-edging a pull shot, gets Clark and Voges nicking into the slips. Consecutive balls, he's on a hat-trick, doesn't get the hat-trick, but a few overs later bowls this gorgeous in-swinging delivery to Mitchell Marsh that Mitch Marsh is nowhere up to dealing with that ball and it just hovers around his bat and smashes over his stumps. All good stuff for the highlight reels. Less exciting the next couple, Mitchell Johnson spooning a pull shot and then later the next day after there's a big partnership between Peter Neville and Mitchell Stark where they both make half centuries, he gets Neville caught down the league side. But the, the two edges into the slips and the clean bold are good enough for the highlight reels. And it finishes up a special innings in the life and career of Stephen Finn at Edgebaston, 6 for 79. Yeah, I'd add a bit to that, that on day one, I think he only takes, I say only, he takes two wickets in knocking Australia over for uh, 136 on day one. But I'm pretty sure Chris Rogers said that was the day when he realised he was coming to the end because Finn was bowling so quickly on day one that he's like, I need to sort of, take a beat here and consider um, whether I continue playing as an Australian cricketer. So that's noteworthy, as is uh, that ball to Mitch Marsh and the fact that he was on the hat-trick, how loud it was when he was on a hat-trick. Jeff, you were there that week and I wasn't, but watching the footage back when we were preparing for the live show last year, that was quite something uh, when when Finn was charging in, trying to take a hat-trick. And remember that they pull out that performance England after being destroyed at Lord's. I mean, I wrote an article for All Out Cricket after the second test where um, I think uh, I think how it was set up was I was writing the Australian piece after the first two test matches and I think Phil Walker was writing the England piece. And mine is so upbeat about Australia's prospects after winning at Lords. Like, it, I mean, it would have been embarrassing had they ever published it online by the time the magazine went to print because by that stage, Edgbiston had happened and, and Knotts happens the week after and they're... they're destroyed in the space of a fortnight in the Midlands and, and so it goes. But, yeah, that bounce back at Edgebaston and them changing tack. Because remember at the very start of the series, Jeff, that Darren Lehman was complaining that there was no life in the pitch at Cardiff. He's like, oh, it's just a piece of shit. You know? And I think Lord's copped a bit of a whack too because Australia made loads of runs uh, on, yep. on across the first two days. And there was this sense that the curators in England were 
or the groundsmen as they call them here, were not giving bowlers enough of a chance. And then two test matches later, the Australians were whinging that there was too much life in the pitches in mm-hmm. test three and four. So um, mm-hmm. I did enjoy that contradiction uh, between the start and the middle of the series that England went on to uh, win 3-2, didn't they, with Australia um, claiming a, an innings victory in the dead rubber. Yeah, it was it was a it was a pretty dead track at Lords and Australia won handsomely in the end because Mitchell Johnson did a Mitchell Johnson. He just yes, bashed right. it in short yeah. um, and sort of and took well. the slowness of the pitch out of the equation and took a bunch of wickets that way. It was it was yeah, there was a lot of um heat that week on the the head uh, groundsman uh, Mick Hunt, who nobody ever refers to as Mike. Anyway, that's the end of our uh, new numbers uh, for the show. If you want to send in a number for Nerd Pledge, you can, and it has the joint effect of getting you to have a number on Nerd Pledge and helping us keep making the show and all the other shows that we do, which are all supported by this. If you want to do that, you go to a website. It is called Patreon, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash the final word. And there you can sign up, you can set the number that you want to send, we will see it, we will add it to our list and we will do it on the show. It is as simple as that, beautiful in its simplicity and you too can pledge like a nerd. Yeah, and from there we can tell your story and you can join the Discord channel, the nicest corner of the internet, patreon.com forward slash the final word. And I said this last week, if you are already a patron and haven't been able to work out the Discord thing, send us a message on Patreon and we will send you the, the link to the to the back door. So... Um, that should be fairly straightforward. A number of our existing patrons have done that in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Jeff, we've been going for over an hour, so we're going to leave the few revisits that we've got. Uh, Chris Byrne, Sam Chappell and Alex Brown. We have got your answers, but we'll do them next week so we can balance the show that way. Instead, we're going to tuck into a truckload of confirmations uh, before we sign off this week. And the first of those is the 327 from Steve Lofthouse. Last week, Jeff talked about episode 27, season three of The Nanny, The Thing, Max Wells Sheffield, Glenn Maxwell. If you heard it, you know what we're saying. Uh, Lofty's note reads, Thanks, gents. You are absolutely correct about the origins of my 327 pledge. My apologies if I made it too easy for you, but I didn't want it dragging out over several weeks as I felt guilty about making you spend time on such a barely relevant to cricket pledge. You, of course, then went and devoted almost 10 whole minutes to summarising the premise of the series, completing a deep dive recap of the episode in question and providing an impromptu performance of the theme song. It brought a very wide smile to my face as I perused the flavoured milk aisle at my local supermarket. No egg flip, so I had to settle for a brown cinnamon bun, four stars out of five. As mm, some getting ba- good, uh, good reviews on the uh, the Milk Round channel on Discord, the, uh, the Browns, they're a new entry to the market. Oh, really? Well, mm. take note of that. We need to hit them up and ask them to sponsor the show. It's getting ridiculous <laughs> that we don't have a sponsor yet who, who, who relates to flavoured milk. Come on now. As some backstory, I made this pledge after finishing a rewatch of the whole series of The Nanny, and I'm pleased to report that it still holds up reasonably well. I'll also add that Chester the dog was the real-life pet of Fran Drescher. No need for 17 stand-ins. Thanks once again for proving that the two of you are my kind of people. Cheers, Lofty. Well, Lofty, in turn, you're one of us, no doubt. One of us, one of us. That is a lot of time to devote to Grandma Yetta, uh, Lofty. So, you know, uh, kudos to you for having the fortitude to get through it all. Cam Allen with his 176, he said, spot on, Adam, the cap number of Ron Hammonds 
who was, uh, if you missed that show, a player on the Invincibles tour who never got to play. Uh, My parents had a beautiful coffee table book about the Invincibles tour when I was growing up. I felt sorry for Colin McCool and Ron, who came across as anonymous in a team of legends, but a great team man. Interesting to see the likes of Keith Miller say that he was hard done by. There were opportunities in tour matches for him to bat up the order, but they always stuck with Bradman, Hassett, Morris, Harvey, etc. Churning out the runs. Well, I bet you if Billy Murdoch had been there, he would have been batting himself up the order as well, not giving Ron <laughs> Hammond to go. Nice one. 531 Stuart Akers. Uh, I eventually uh, got to Simon O'Donnell's best one-day international uh, figures and his career as a St Kilda footballer. Just listen to Storytime 89. You got my number correct. The great Simon O'Donnell, he was one of my heroes as a kid despite playing for St Kilda. Uh, Vivek Arcot says uh, for his 204, in which I talked about India failing to chase 204 or getting bowled out for 204, chasing a small target against Pakistan. He said, uh, good news that that your answer is correct, even though I know it's not correct because he'd also told me it was a different answer previously. But Vivek says, um, even though I had no clue about that test match ever having been held, the confirmation is an appreciation of your efforts and the fun times we have listening to story time. So he's he's given me a charity pass on the answer, which I appreciate. Thanks, Vivek. Cheers, Vivek. Uh, to- 2019, William Jordan. I talked about a tie between uh, Zimbabwe and Pakistan. Will goes on to say, Adam did not get my 2019, but honestly, I liked his story about the tied one day and carrying the bat in a one day better than what I would have suggested anyway. So we've had two in a row with Vivek and Will who've, uh, who've liked our response better than the ones they had planned and have happily given us the green light. <laughs> uh, Ed Bar Sim, a.k.a. Ed Simba, with his 133, he says, spot on, it was about the life and times of Amir Sahail. He says, uh, Simba here, oh, I don't know if I can read this bit out. He says, I could really hear the pain in Jeffo's voice, as he said, my nerd <laughs> pledge. I think that's because he'd addressed me as that. Um, Amir Sahail is exactly right. Loved the story just for his send-offs alone and also says he appreciates her anti-gambling stance. It's dirty money, he says, and it is. Filthy. Yep, no chance of us taking that any time ever. Uh, 480 from Dave Brown. Uh, Jeff finally landed on Ike Travers via the Norwood Link and Ernie Main and all the rest of it. Dave simply says, third time's a charm. Sammy Dowd's 214. She says, spot on with Greg Blewett making 214. Uh, I need to skew from my usual course, says Sammy, and find a little more off-Broadway number. Uh, I like that she's taken on your sort of lingo as well because off-Broadway is one of your favourite Something phrases, I say. So. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Thank you, Sammy. 11.33, this was Philippa Clark. Jeff discussed Ash Barty's WBBL career. Her average was 11.33, wasn't it? Uh, Philippa says, nice work on finally nailing down my January 29 pledge. The one, the only Ashley Barty, Brisbane Heat batter who moonlighted a bit as a tennis player because the 29th of January, Jeff, was the, the, the clue and, and that was the, the evening uh, where she won the Australian Open earlier this year. Uh, Graham Innes with his 4.31, he says, it was indeed uh, the first class average, if I remember correctly, of Rob Langer, uh, the uncle of Justin, uh, another tough Western Australian. And Graham says, yes, thanks. It was Rob Langer who, if he'd been a gentleman of Philadelphia or a smoker or non-smoker, would have had a different average. <laughs> I didn't work this out the first time around, but I've just realised that what that means is that Rob Langer played some World Series cricket and did pretty well in World Series cricket and thus 
if those games were recognised as first class, which they should be, he would have a better first class record than he currently has. Uh, next here from Josh. Jeff, you were able to work out that Jonathan Trott uh, hit the most fours without hitting a six. And Josh says, you are correct. I'm really a sucker for stats like that. And a note, not exactly a confirmation, but a sort of follow-up from a number from Guy Hornsby uh, saying, my first nerd pledge was Ali Brown, the Surrey hero who's 268, is still untouched. But I decided idly one day, I'm assuming, Guy, just to check cap number 268 and see who it was. It was a player he'd never heard of, James Langridge, nestled in between the likes of the Nawab of Pataudi, Headley Verity, Eric Hollies and Mandy Mitchell Innes. He played eight <laughs> tests either side of World War II. Seven for 56 on debut against the West Indies, still the ninth best debut bowling figures of all time. A Wisden five cricketer in 1931, played into his 40s, scored 1,000 runs and took 100 wickets six years in a row from 1930. 31,000 runs for Sussex, 1,530 wickets at 22. Uh, went to Australia in 1946 and then got injured on the eve of his Ashes debut. And, says Guy, by all accounts, he was very much not a bastard. So not all of these old players were celebrity racists or riddled with STDs. <laughs> well, that is a comforting thought, Guy, and thank you for sharing it with us. Right in the spirit of things as we finish another episode of Storytime. Uh, Jeff, that was fun. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed researching it and delivering it. If you want to be part of what we do here on the weekend, uh, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thank you to our team in Melbourne who produce the show each week on the Bad Producer production label. Dave Collins, our editor. To everybody who listens to the show week in, week out, wherever it finds you around the world, we're grateful for all of the sharing of the shows on social media and the comments and the replies and all the rest of it. It's all part of the fun. And I think that's just about it for us for the week. We'll be back as we always are next week with a weekly show. We have an interview with an international cricketer. I won't say who. And then we'll be into the daily shows from Lords when England's men take on New Zealand from Thursday across the big, long Queen's Jubilee long weekend. Right, that's it. It's been story time. Hope you liked it. Speak soon. Ta-da. See ya. I had to go about it.